Welcome, everyone, to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian-American conversations about all things, including the topics you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Hula Ramos, and on today's show, we'll be talking about COVID-19. Joining us is Dr. Paul Song, who is a uh, oncologist in Santa Ana, California, and is affiliated with California Hospital Medical Center. He received his medical degree from George Washington University's uh, School of Medicine and has been in practice for more than 20 years. Please welcome Dr. Paul Song. How are you doing today, Dr. Song? Uh, doing great, and it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you joining the show. It's definitely important you know, to get this information out because we're obviously in the pandemic, and, and a lot of people have some information, you know, whether or not they've seen it on social media um, and they, you know, take it as fact. We want to make sure we disseminate a lot of that information, but at the same time, you know, getting, you know, especially in the Asian American community, just informing people so they can make better decisions. Well, again, I, I, again, it's a pleasure for me to be here and to have this discussion with you. No, absolutely. We appreciate you. And before we even talk about all of that stuff, can you share a little bit about yourself, you know, your life growing up as a Korean American? Well, uh, my uh, mom uh, came to the United States in 1951. She was a refugee during the Korean War. She was able to uh, gain a scholarship to come here through some women that heard uh, about the plight of her family uh, as refugees in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, she would graduate from Columbia Teachers College and go on to uh, work in early childhood education in really underserved communities here in the United States. My father was actually uh, born in Pyongyang, uh, what is now North Korea. He happened to be a student uh, in Seoul during the Korean War joined the South Korean Navy, fought in the war, and then also came here as a graduate student. And they serendipitously met here in the United States, uh, eventually got married and had me. I was born and raised in New York City, uh, grew up at a time when there were very few Asians and certainly Koreans in the New Jersey, uh, New York area. Now you couldn't imagine that area without so many Koreans, but at a time uh, when I was in elementary school, most kids were asking me, was I Chinese or Japanese? And very few had mm -hmm. actually heard of uh, Korea. Uh, right. Uh, grew up uh, in, in northern uh, New Jersey, ended up going to um, college in Chicago, eventually went to medical school, became a uh, radiation oncologist and have been practicing for about 25 years. Uh, several years ago, uh, left full-time practice of medicine to start a biotech company, but very much involved in research, primarily in cancer, but also now in therapeutics for COVID. Okay. Okay. So like, you know, growing up, you know, in, in New Jersey, the East Coast, um, what led you to want to become, you know, go towards the medical field? Was it something that you just had a passion for or did something you happen to just stumble into? Well, you know, my parents were atypical Asian parents in the sense that they didn't push me or my sister to go to become a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, if anything, my parents, if they had had their choices, would have liked for me to become a pastor, which really, really? wasn't my calling. Yeah. Um, but I just was always very interested in the sciences. Uh, I remember when I was a grade schooler, uh, when President Nixon had uh, declared a war on cancer and having to do a report on cancer. And I just became fascinated at the same time, scared about what cancer was. And so uh, just took a real keen interest to that, started doing research when I was in college. 
and then just naturally decided I wanted to go to medical school and, and, and focus on cancer. Wow, that is amazing. I, I'm just still fascinated by the fact that your uh, family members, your parents, you know, thought you would become a pastor. Was it something that, you know, what, what triggered that, you, that your parents thought you should go towards that route? Well, they were just people that as they got older, their faith grew, uh, they mm -hmm. became very committed to their church, and they felt that the best service that one could do was to um, uh, become a pastor. But at the same time, they recognized that not everyone was called to do that, and uh, that, I, that their son, me, was certainly not one that was called. But if, if they could have really picked something for me, that's, I think, what they would have loved to have seen me do. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, because it's always, like you said, your your family seems to be atypical Asian. Um, my parents were immediately like, you're going to go to medical school. You're going to follow that path, and you're going to be an obstetrician-gynecologist. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great. And, of course, did not end up in that route. Ended up in radio. Um, so it was like one of those things for me. Um, so with that being said, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic, and there's all this information that's out there. And you know, a lot of people are, are reading things from social media or, you know, wherever they're getting their news. First and foremost, let's just start with the basics. Do we know where this coronavirus originated from? Uh, well, that's the, the really the great question that in the beginning of the pandemic, you had world health leaders come out and say this immediately started in a bat and somehow went into an intermediary and then uh, infected individuals. But now, as more time has passed, as people have been able to genetically sequence the virus to really look deep and hard, I think people realize that nobody can prove either way, meaning those that have said immediately that this was not man-made and came from a bat and then jumped to an intermediate species have since been disproven in the sense that there's not enough data to show that was the case. And then you have really the far uh, other side saying that this originated in the lab in Wuhan and it was a, uh, a mistake gone wrong. Uh, the facts are that the truth lies somewhere in between that because uh, you know, China has not been transparent in terms of allowing people to really go in and look at the records at, at the um, virology lab in Wuhan. But if you okay. really look, and uh, if, for those of your listeners who want to learn a little bit more about it, there was an incredible uh, in-depth uh, summary of this, this uh, origin of this by, uh, recently published by Nicholas Wade, who's a very, very well-respected apolitical medical journalist, scientific journalist, uh, that really uh, debunked a lot of the initial claims that were done by those that said it came from animals and then said why those that have said that this originated in the lab cannot be certain as well. What we do know is if you look at some of the sequencing of the variants that are out there, there's uh, a couple things in there that suggest that this may not have been naturally occurring. Uh, and uh, prior to the pandemic, wow. Uh, there was uh, somebody in New York uh, who um, runs an organization that um, has been funding the lab in Wuhan, uh, and he had given an interview two weeks before. He, uh, it's Dr. Uh, Peter Daszak, and he runs the Eco Health Alliance. Uh, of, uh, and what he uh, was proud to show is that they were doing these gain of function tests, and what that means is. 
uh, virologists and infectious disease experts were always trying to get ahead of the next pandemic. And okay. what they, many of them were doing were taking viruses that had caused problems before, like the coronavirus, and trying to make it deliberately more aggressive to sort of say, this is what it would mutate to next, and this is where we need to prepare to uh, attack. And what, what's really um, interesting is immediately after this happened, he released a statement and he got all of these scientists to say that this was naturally occurring. Uh, but since then, that uh, people have said that he, the publications that he had were really not based on any real evidence. So the best thing I could say to your listeners is that we simply don't know. Um, that until there is full transparency and the ability to look at exactly what uh, was being conducted at the lab in Wuhan, uh, the whole world will never really know. Wow. Because that, you know, I sit back and I think then, you know, something like this would it, I mean, it's in, in, inevitable that something like this happened. You know what I mean? With everything going on. Absolutely. And this is where, again, I would ask your uh, listeners, if they really are interested in this, to pull up this essay written by Nicholas Wade, W-A-D-E, called Mm -hmm. Origin of COVID, Following the Clues. And it doesn't come down conclusively on one side or another, but it is probably the most uh, fair, unbiased analysis of all of the arguments for and against this being um, animal-born versus man-made. Uh, and I think it really leaves you with a bigger question at the same time, uh, understanding that nobody has the answer right now. Right, right. Okay. Now, that's good to know. Now, in regards to COVID-19, how does it affect the body? Well, the, the biggest thing, and I will say this, I've had COVID. Okay. I had COVID uh, in November and then have since been vaccinated several months later. Uh, the the primary way that COVID first enters our body is uh, through our respiratory tract, either through our nasal cavity or by us directly uh, breathing or ingesting it through our mouth and getting into our lungs. It is, uh, there's a spike protein that binds to the angiotensin converting enzyme or the ACE receptor. uh, And that is very prevalent on our mucous membranes. And once the virus uh, attaches to that, it starts to uh, infect uh, the neighboring cells. Uh, once the cells are produ- uh, infected, they, then they start to produce more and more virus, and the virus starts to spread throughout our bodies. Uh, probably the biggest side effects that you've heard are uh, very high fevers, uh, respiratory problems, but probably the other the common side effects are people developing nasal congestion, uh, right. loss of smell, loss of taste, And what we do know is that the majority of people who do get the virus um, recover quite well. Uh, But because the virus is so infectious, it's the sheer number of people that get infected. And that's why we've had such a a, a massive death rate. The other thing about the the virus is that what we're learning is the long-term effects, that even if you've been uh, uh, successfully recovered from that, a lot of people have prolonged episodes of vertigo, which is dizziness. A lot mm-hmm. of people have um, difficulty with taste and smell. To this degree, I had, as I mentioned, COVID in November. I right. only have gotten about 10% of my smell back since then. Wow. Really? 
Yes. Oh my, uh, wow. And and uh, and then for taste, I still haven't gotten all of my taste back as well. And what's really interesting is, uh, you would think as a Korean I could eat spicy food, but prior to the uh, pandemic, I was probably one of the wimpiest Koreans. I would eat the slightest <laughs> bit of spice, and I would really have a you know I, I couldn't do it. Right. But shortly after my uh, bout with COVID, I put a big spoonful of the hottest chilies in my mouth, and I couldn't taste it. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. That's definitely so for those because I I know many people who've who've gotten COVID and they um you know they a, a majority of them no not a majority I'd say half of them have decided not to get vaccinated. Um, is what's the likelihood of you getting COVID again once you've gotten it before? Well, uh, it depends when you're exposed to it. So what we know is from studies that have been done in Europe, specifically, they um, were following some professional athletes who had tested positive, and they kept testing them uh, monthly, that there was a uh, championship uh, bike list in Italy who mm -hmm. got reinfected eight months after uh, his first bout of COVID. And uh, what they suspect is this, that when you're exposed to COVID or you had COVID, that your immunity can last somewhere between, you know, six to, months to a year. Uh, and then at some point, uh, you can get COVID again, although most people suspect the second time, if you get it, will be far milder than your first time. Uh, so I, I, to those who have had COVID before, who think they're forever protected and don't want to get the vaccine, I, I would really encourage them to get the vaccine. Uh, to, mm -hmm. again, further boost their immune system and make the likelihood of them getting COVID even less than what it is right now. No, that's great. That's definitely great advice for sure. Now, you know, this term that I've heard in the media as well, social media, is herd immunity. Can you tell us what is herd immunity and how does that work? So herd immunity, I think the biggest example is measles, where if you vaccinate a certain percentage of the entire population or and or that population has had exposure and prior infection to that, uh, that you can really prevent the further spread of this. Um, mm -hmm. And so with measles, it's been estimated that we need 90% of our population to either have been vaccinated or to have had measles. And as a result, once you have that sort of large uh, penetration of exposure, either through a vaccine or through the active infection, that then the likelihood, it sort of burns itself out. What they believe now with COVID is we need somewhere between 65 to 75% of our population either needs to have been infected uh, or had been vaccinated. Uh, and we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. So with that being said, because I keep hearing these stories about uh, variants with COVID and like how likely like somebody like me who's fully vaccinated, I'm still fearful of even, you know, not wearing a mask or, or being out in public because of the fact that I'm fully vaxxed, but I keep hearing about these variants and about other countries still being closed. You know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So one of the things about coronavirus is relative to other viruses, it's relatively slow to mutate, but because it's so prevalent and so uh, widespread, 
um, it's, a, it's the likelihood that it's going to mutate and, and survive is much greater. So, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, people that have had a uh, vaccination or been exposed uh, maybe in a year from now, when you look at the variants that are emerging in India, Brazil, elsewhere, right. uh, particularly in countries that have not had been able to vaccinate their individuals, uh, is there a chance those variants could then uh, reinfect our population? We're still looking at that. From what we can tell, uh, some of the viruses, uh, vaccines seem to have some protective effects against the Indian variant. Some of mm -hmm. the vaccines have protection against the South African variant, uh, and, and, and we're still waiting to see with regard to the Brazil variant. The, the, the feeling is that any vaccination or any prior exposure will uh, make it less likely that you will have a deadly outcome if you get infected or exposed to a new variant compared to those that have never been exposed before. Uh, which is good. But I think this is still a work in progress. But because the rollout of the vaccination worldwide was not uniform, meaning, you know, the United States, we're getting close to vaccinating over 50 percent of our population, where some countries like Korea and uh, others have had less than 10 percent of their population thus far. Uh, and, and that's why you feel you look at countries like Korea and Taiwan, they've very much closed their borders because they don't want anyone coming in. They've been able to right. keep infection rates down until they can vaccinate everyone fully, whereas countries like India and Brazil, where they kind of took more of a lax approach and this has spread like wildfire, uh, it's spreading uh, well before they've ever had a chance to make a meaningful dent with the vaccinations. You take all that together, you're just going to allow the virus to continue to escape, mutate, and, and stay in our uh, ecosystem indefinitely. So people do believe that over the next four or five years, we're probably going to still have this be a part of our lives. But because we do have such a large population of vaccination in the United States, uh, we're in a better situation. But that doesn't mean that elsewhere in those countries that haven't been vaccinated, that they could continue to, to create new variants that eventually could, could come back and reinfect some people here. So it's, it's never fully gone away, and it really shows you how our world really is interrelated and how we really do need to work together and why it's so important for us to go and, as, as the United States, uh, help to try to vaccinate the rest of the world, because in some respects, uh, this is not like Ebola that people said, oh, it's only in a part of Africa. We don't have to worry about it. This is something right. that's widespread. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, with that, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, too, because of the fact that just recently the CDC said, you know what, if you're fully vaxxed, you don't have to wear a mask. That, that's the big story that hit, you know, this past weekend. And everybody's been talking about it. I actually just came back from church and you know, my my uh, my priest was telling us, nope, the bishop hasn't said anything. We're all still wearing our mask and I am fine to wear my mask. Um, so, you know, for those of us that are, are fully vaxxed, do you you suggest we still wear our masks, still wash our hands, all that stuff? Or is it something that, you know, the CDC is saying, no, nope, you don't have to do that? Well, again, this is something that was rolled out so quickly and a lot of people are still trying to digest it from the scientific community. I think right. it's important for people to realize what was the real reason to get people to wear masks. Uh, unless you were really wearing one of those N95 masks that, you know, frontline healthcare workers uh, do that doesn't allow any viral particles to come in, um, 
the, the majority of us, the reason we're wearing masks, believe it or not, is not so much to protect ourselves, but to protect others. Meaning that if we unknowingly were carrying the virus, by wearing a mask, we're less likely to spread the particles in our immediate surroundings than without a mask. Uh, so when, they, when the CDC comes out and says, if you're fully vaccinated, that you don't need to wear a mask, what they're trying to say is, because you're fully vaccinated, the likelihood of you either being infected or being able to spread the virus uh, in your immediate vicinity is very, very low. And that's okay. why we feel you can uh, not wear your mask. They're, at, they're basically telling people we're vaccinated. We don't need to do that because our risk of spreading it to others is very low. But if you choose to wear a mask, uh, you know, it, it, the biggest thing right now is uh, that I mean, that's people don't realize everyone thinks when they put a mask on, it was really to protect themselves. But the reality is, if you're wearing one of these cloth masks, uh, if you're really exposed to somebody who has COVID, it's not filtering the particles to the degree where you're fully protected. It was okay. more that if you cough or sneeze, you're sneezing mostly into your mask and it's less likely to have it spread six feet or beyond. Uh, so that was the real reason. So if you take that into consideration, uh, what the CDC is saying does make sense. But um, the, the concern that I think a lot of people have is because we still have a large percentage of our population that has either refused to be vaccinated uh, or says they're vaccinated when they weren't, uh, are they uh, putting other people at harm? So like if you and I have had the vaccine, I think the likelihood of us getting infected from somebody like that is low. But I look at somebody who's older uh, and what is their risk. Uh, so, you know, by and large, I, I just hope that people will get vaccinated. And if they have not, then they absolutely should wear a mask, not to protect themselves, but to avoid infecting others. And that's great. I, I, I'm glad you transitioned to that as far as the vaccine. Um, because of the fact that you, you know, you feel strongly, it's definitely important for everyone to get vaccinated. Why do you feel that way? Well, again, uh, when you look at how aggressive this disease is, uh, think about where we were just, you know, 16 months ago, we right. never, uh, could have ever imagined this type of pandemic that we're in. And do we really want to keep going through that? And the only way we're going to bring this to a really a close um, and get back to the real normalcy that we all are longing for is for everyone to do their part. So as I mentioned, we have two choices. We can either see 70% of our whole uh, population get infected and or have the vaccine, or we can continue to have infections that will mutate uh, and this will continue to drag on. Now, speaking of the vaccine, because I've heard, you know, again, just uh, the way that it works is supposedly the you're given the DNA of the actual you know, the COVID, is, you know, not actually COVID. How does that all work? I, I guess that's what my bottom question my question is. Right. So there's there's two different types of virus, uh, vaccines. So the RNA viruses, which are the Moderna uh, and the Pfizer are based on a new technology where they take something called messenger RNA. Okay. Uh, what messenger RNA is sort of the construction instruction. So when a virus infects a normal cell, it injects uh, its RNA into the uh, your host cell. Your cell produces these, 
and the RNA is the instructions on how to make more and more cells. What, what they've done with the mRNA vaccine is they put a messenger RNA, and by putting this into the body, it basically tricks your healthy cells to produce um, uh, a spike protein-like compound, and then your immune system then starts to attack it and develops this um, um, signal that this is what we're looking for. So that's, that's the mRNA vaccine. The other one that the J&J or the AstraZeneca is your traditional viral vector. So they take a virus, many times a, a wimpy virus like the common cold and adenovirus. Uh, they manipulate it by putting in uh, like a, a, a construct that those viruses then will infect your cells very much like the coronavirus does. Okay. Uh, but And then it tricks your uh, body into producing these proteins. And again, your body elicits an immune response. Um, two slightly different uh, ways to go about it, but they both are basically using your own body's uh, normal cells to produce uh, a protein that is by itself not attached. So, you know, the spike protein on a coronavirus is how the coronavirus anchors to our healthy cells and infects us. So what, right. the, what, what both of these do is create, uh, use our own bodies to produce the spike protein without the virus attached to it. So then whenever our body sees the spike protein, it goes in and it hones in and it kills it. And the idea is then the next time if you are uh, exposed to a coronavirus, just because your body's been trained to recognize and attack that spike protein, it does so. And that's how we develop uh, an immune protection against that. And speaking of that immune protection, how does it? How long does it last on average? Is it one of those things where now, you know, every year we're going to get a flu vaccination and a COVID vaccination? Most likely, that's what I think is going to happen. Again, this is also new. Right. The, the most of us have only had the vaccine in our system for at most four months, maybe even less. So I think they're still trying to figure out how long would it be protective for. Uh, I do know that um, Moderna is trying to come up with a booster shot uh, to try to take into like so many of your view listeners who have gotten the Moderna, they've had two injections. Now there's a potential they might require a third, which is really designed to uh, heighten the uh, response against these new variants. Uh, but these are still a overall work in progress. And we don't really know how long they last for just yet. That we're hoping, uh, if you look at just how long the average infection lasts, as I mentioned, the, the feeling is it lasts about six mo uh, eight months after your infection, uh, that we should get eight months to a year protection of that. But it is something that most likely we will need to get shots every year. That makes sense. Absolutely. Now, there's a lot of people, especially among the ethnic minority groups, the Pacific Islanders and black community that are hesitant about getting vaccines and are pretty much under vaccinated. How can we better educate, in your opinion, them and support them in this community about vaccine? Well, you know, I certainly with regard to the African-American community uh, and what happened with the Tuskegee Airmen and the various um, really unethical medical studies that have been done at the past uh, I, I understand some of the uh, anxiety as well as reluctance, but also what I would say is if you look at who was hard, hit hardest during the pandemic, it really was communities of color in terms of a disproportionate number of people dying 
uh, in the um, black community compared to others. And so uh, along those lines, uh, and, and because the studies that were done this time were really done extremely well, they enrolled not only uh, Caucasian people, but they had Asian, uh, uh, you know, every ethnic group enrolled. So they were able to look at side effects. They were able to look at um, all of the aspects and, and found it to be very safe across all ethnicities. So mm -hmm. I would really uh, say look at the toll and harm that it's taken in your own communities uh, and to say that, you know, you really don't want uh, to be one of those casualties moving forward. Uh, and because the safety profile is so really high that I would really encourage everyone to give us give this a chance. Absolutely. Now, what are the common underlying conditions that this group um, that makes them more vulnerable or higher risk to getting the virus with uh, severe side effects or even death? Well, in general, what we know is that uh, if you are the, the highest risk was being uh, older, uh, being uh, having high blood pressure, history of uh, lung, uh, whether it be asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, history of diabetes, other underlying medical conditions, uh, obesity, all of those things predispose you to uh, having a poor outcome uh, if you are infected. Uh, and I think that speaks again to the greater disparities in our healthcare system. If you look at the degree of uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, it's definitely higher in, um, disproportionately higher in uh, underserved and minority communities. Part of it is due to a lack of access to quality health care. Maybe they uh, don't have private insurance. Maybe they are living in areas or states where the governors have refused to expand Medicaid. Uh, there are a lot of socioeconomic reasons uh, that make certain populations more vulnerable uh, to the outcomes of, of COVID. This is, all of this information is definitely important information. As far as, you know, those of us that are trying to get this out there and in, into our communities, uh, especially for Asian Voices Radio podcasts, we're trying to get this out to the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Uh, where can we, you know, what websites, what social media, what, what platforms are, are we able to get up to date, factual information from, in your opinion? Well, I think one is the CDC, which had become quite political during the last administration, but has really been restored to purely science. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I do think that they have um, links in various languages. Uh, I also think that people can contact their own state health departments to learn more, their local county health departments to get a sense of what is the uh, infection rate in their counties and then where they can go and get uh, the vaccine. The good thing is, uh, regardless of your um, insurance status, uh, your uh, documented status, uh, they've tried to make everyone eligible for the vaccine at no cost. And I think that that's really, really important. Now, I, I, I you know, we all know that it seems that kids now or teens 12 and up are now able or eligible to get vaccinated. And so a lot of that is happening. Um, you know, I have little girls that are, you know, eight and six years old. Do you foresee them going through that process as well? 
yes. Uh, and matter of fact, they are doing studies right now on young kids. I actually have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old as well. So okay. um, I'm watching this very, very closely. Absolutely. Uh, but if you look at, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, information and incomplete data about children. Initially, we were told that kids were very resistant to COVID, that they were not super spreaders, that uh, we didn't really have to worry about that. But the fact is, most kids were immediately put into remote learning early on. Mm -hmm. They were kept in pods. Their exposure was quite low. And what we're seeing, certainly with the data that's emerging from Brazil, is we're seeing a lot of kids that are ending up hospitalized in Brazil. So that um, perhaps it's a, it's, we just don't know. And rather than take the chance, uh, just like we would give our kids a, a, a vaccine for measles or the flu, I do think that once these initial studies that are done in kids are completed, as long as, again, that they're safe, uh, I, I certainly do think it is worthwhile uh, to consider vaccinating our kids, particularly if we want them back in-person learning. Uh, and, and not only that, uh, many of, I don't know how old your, uh, their grandparents are, but we, again, just want to reduce the risk of uh, infecting our grandparents. So let's say our kids don't get vaccinated, they get exposed to some new variant that maybe the vaccine that our uh, parents have taken uh, doesn't cover, and right. your uh, kid comes home from school uh, and uh, you know has the sniffles, not knowing, test positive, and then infects you know, that your, uh, their grandparents, I mean, that could have deadly consequences down the line. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Dr. Song, you've given us so much information and, and I do appreciate you, you know, being on our show. I, I know that as we're going through this and as more people are getting vaccinated in, in our country and, and as this variant thing is happening and, uh, you know, there's going to be more changes that we're going to all have to deal with. And I would love to have you come back on our show um, as we get more information. Would you be able to join us? I would always love to be on. And thank you guys for spreading the word and and keeping um, this information uh, public and getting it out to our community. Uh, Really grateful to you all. We appreciate you and and appreciate you saying that. Um, Real quick, if anybody that is listening wants to maybe contact you or, or follow you on social media or, you know, just read up about you. Where can they follow you or find you? So I'm on, uh, Instagram at Paul Y song. Uh, they can always, uh, email me at, uh, Paul song at gmail.com and, uh, really happy to, uh, help in any way. Perfect. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Dr. Song. Um, To learn more about today's show, please visit AsianVoicesRadio.com. Also, if you have any suggestions for future topics, we'd love to hear from you. Also, be sure to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And until next time, I'm Hula Ramos. And on behalf of Dr. Paul Song, we'd like to thank you for listening. And please join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices Radio show. Take care until next time.